Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number 16. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 16. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. All right, I'm totally pumped to do today's recording. We got our first email or our first feedback from someone that we don't know. And here's what she has to say. Dear John and Greg, thank you for your podcast, Untangling Christianity. I wrote a big, long email explaining why I appreciate it so much, but I don't even know how to put it into words correctly, so I ditched it. I will make it, I will just make it brief. I was raised in a Christian, I am now, I think it's meant to say I, I was raised in a Christian home or setting, and then goes on to say, I am now 40 years old, but I have some experiences that don't seem to fit nicely into what I've been taught about God. You've hit the nail on the head with your discussion regarding the need for authentic personal experiences and relationship with God in addition to simply believing in Him. This is so crucially important to me, and I'm thankful you are discussing this rather huge issue. I've listened to a lot of podcasts, and this is the first time I've responded by email. Please keep the discussion going. I'm listening. Anna from Washington. Thank you, Anna. That was super encouraging to us. We've been doing this and uh, not sure if anyone was listening or how it was being received. And so super encouraging, mm-hmm. super glad that it's, that you're finding it useful. Yeah. Um, and I thought it was, I thought the middle part of what you said there was, <laughs> in some ways kind of sums up, I don't know, seven or eight podcasts in one sentence really well, which is, uh, you've hit the nail on the head with your discussion regarding the need for authentic personal experiences in relationship with God. In addition to simply believing in him. And I'm like, wow, that's a perfect summary. Well, and it also shows that I guess uh, A, Anna's been listening well, and B, we've been clear enough for people to get that. Because that, that is such a core of what we've been trying to say. So thank you for that email. They're welcome from you anytime or anyone else. We're open to negative emails too. If there's some part of, in fact, I, I wrote back to Anna and said, you know, well, ha- first of all, how did you find out about us? And she, I guess, found us searching on iTunes. And I also said, hey, is there anything to make this better or that we should do differently? And she said, no, no, don't change a thing. It's great. I'd still throw that out there to anyone. If if at some point we start missing the mark or we're off in areas or, I don't know, some part of our presentation isn't helpful, let us know. Also, on that note, I would also say, you know, our, our email is feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. It doesn't have to necessarily be feedback either. I was talking to Greg a little bit before we started here. And that's the idea that it, it the, you don't have to give us feedback per se. It could be a question. It could be, uh, wow, yours is the first podcast I've found like this. Are you aware of others? To which I I could easily answer yes, because I've been searching for them myself for a long time. And there, there are a handful of other ones that I listen to. So... I guess the thought that popped into my head is we don't have the answers to everything, but if you're curious about something or if you're looking for something, you're looking for resources, you have a question about, you guys talk about this place called Labrie all the time. Like what, I went to the website and it, I've never seen anything like it. Could you guys tell me about it? Or could you help me get to Labrie? Could, you know, <laughs> I'm thinking <laughs> of going, like what kind of clothes do I wear? Or when should I go? Or which branches have you been to? I guess what I'm trying to say is we'd also like to be a resource. We're we're just getting started here. We're not buried in hundreds of emails or anything related to this. And we'd really like to be a resource and we'd really like to help people based on all the work that we've done and the things that we've come across and I mean the worst that the worst thing that could happen that I see it is we could say I'm sorry. We don't have any idea or I don't know. Let me go look or something like that. So any, any thoughts on that, Greg? Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, I think we want to, 
it's not just about engaging with the blog or, you know, you may be listening and you may think, I'm just not sure how to, maybe, maybe it's the first time you've heard some of this stuff and it resonates with you on a certain level, but it's not something in terms of where it's connecting with you that you're able to, I don't know, articulate whether that's either, uh, you know, in a, in a, in a positive, receptive way, in a negative questioning way. And, uh, you know, by all means, just to engage us in conversation, whether it's about um, a book or a subject uh, or, you know, as John mentioned, a location like the Brie, um, we're, we're quite open to that. And I would also say, too, um, Anna mentions early on that she wrote a long email and then ditched it. Send us a long email. We're... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think I think people will will agree that that we're not always uh, totally clear and articulate and sure exactly where we're going either. So, um, yeah, long long emails, long I'm not sure where this is going. Emails are, and, and it could just be a fragment of something that that sparks a discussion and, and gives us some more uh, ideas to pursue too. So. Yeah, and I think that whole piece about our, our our personal experiences of some of the issues, you know, we're we're not just here sort of thinking in our heads. Well, what seems to be difficulties? Well, this isn't all. This isn't a. No, this is a lived for, experience. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're coming out of the problems that we've had, and so when people kind of contribute to that and said, you know, I've 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 thought about it this way, or I've experienced, and, I, and but then I've experienced it that way, and these things don't line up, and having those personal examples always helps clarify and can bring some insight well put Thanks. so anything else on Anna's email before we move on to some other reader feedback or list not read listener feedback yeah no I think I think you're you I think it's good I, I was really pleased as you were that her her sentence about you know uh, the need for personal authentic personal experiences in relationship with God in addition to belief in God. And I think, you know, I think we want to touch on both of those things, right? Because we haven't touched as much on believing in God and what's involved in that. And that's, we've, that's kind of been more in the background as I think we've been trying to bring out the idea of personal experience relative to God uh, because that's an idea that's not as accepted or that's m- more difficult to define, more difficult to pin down. But we're, we're interested in both of those things as well as, you know, what it is to be really authentic human beings living in the world. And I think that's a criticism, at least that I've heard quite frequently of Christians, is that they're out of touch with the world around them. And, and my understanding of what it is to be a follower of God is, no, no, it's just the opposite. I am deeply in touch with my world. I am deeply in touch with what's going on, both interpersonally, uh, uh, environmentally, um, economically, socially, etc. That these are all modes of engagement that I should be, uh, you don't have to be an expert on them, but it's, these, are, these are areas where Christians are to be um, interested and engaged, not withdrawn, and certainly not uh, disdaining, not at all. And I think once we get into that, that's, oh boy, you know, you could get me going down a road here. <laughs> I'll be going back down to page 21 of not a fan, but I think when we get into this kind of, it's all about heaven and hell, it's all about what's going to happen down the road. Uh, somehow we lose track of, well, <laughs> I shouldn't say it that way. Somehow we kind of fix our eyes or fix our a f- focus on on this this sort of future endpoint, and we naturally then completely, or at least partially, disengage with the world around us, with where we are right now today, or where we will be next week. And it's just sort of a series of fairly uh, 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 decisions of lesser importance. And I think that that is bogus. That is totally, totally, totally bogus. So, yeah, I'm just interested in. I'm excited that I think there's possibilities for us to expand our discussion and kind of touch on all that. So where were you going to go next, though? Well, to your point there, I would say yes. And I, th- I think that's for, for people that are thinking, well, should I send them feedback or not? It won't matter. I, I want to emphasize that it does matter. It, you may think that whatever you're sending isn't a big deal, but it does it does help us focus and it kind of helps us know where to go and it could also help us to go to places we had never really considered that may seem completely obvious so right. 
And, and is it worth mentioning that this is actually J- John and I are podcasting today out of our normal schedule? Yeah, uh, we're we're doing a special is, reader feedback. Or, exactly. <laughs> I keep calling it reader. <laughs> special listener feedback segment. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, it gets us pumped up, and, and uh, please do connect with us. So the second one was from episode number three, which was titled Ways We Read the Bible. That episode mm. was about a, but just a kind of different approaches that people typically take to reading the Bible. And we have a comment from Charlie. And he says, I th- this is a comment from the website. So if you go mm-hmm. to untanglingchristianity.com slash three, you'll see this comment there. And feel free to add your own. Charlie says, I think it's an interesting point that you make that we bring our own agendas to our reading and our interpretation of the Bible. It reminds me of a quote that I heard from Walt Hendrickson, one of the leaders and navigators, who has asked, or I think maybe meant to say was, asked when his motives were pure. His response, I have never had a pure motive in my life. And this, Charlie continues, I think there is a fundamental truth here that we are all biased. And in your response, Greg, you 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 wanted to separate out the difference between agendas and motives. Mm-hmm. And I think you were saying that you preferred to characterize these as this as an agenda rather than, or as you put it in your words, I would argue that it is more accurate to describe the matter as you put it as having an agenda, in quote, than as not having pure motives. So I would have never, I don't know, I had never really thought, oh, there's a difference between agendas and motives. Yeah, they're pretty much the same. But I guess when I reflect on it a little bit more, I can see that there would be a difference. So so talk about this a little bit more. What What's the key distinction here in and why does it matter? Okay. Well, I do. I, I've never read, I've never actually heard of uh, Walt Hendrickson. I've heard of the other fellow in terms of navigators, Jerry Bridges, and we've talked a little bit about one of Jerry Bridges' books, which is a, a Christian classic. I use the word classic loosely because, I mean, I, I don't put it in that category myself, um, but but many people do see it as a classic called Trusting God. So not having known anything about um, Hendrickson, I wasn't really sure what Charlie – well, what what Hendrickson really meant when he said, I've never had a pure motive in my life. But I thought, okay, there could be two ways of taking this. One is we could see this in terms of sin and sinfulness, right? And so the idea of never having a pure motive could be meant to mean um, I am always, uh, when I am doing something, even if it's philanthropic or if it's altruistic, if I'm giving to others in some way, that I am always doing that with a certain... Um, Sinful self-interest, sinful self-interest, that idea. And what I'm trying to, I'm trying to move away from that because I, no, I, I don't, I don't actually always think that. I do think that I am always self-involved. And I guess what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make a distinction between saying I'm involved in this process versus my involvement in this process at some level must necessarily be sinful. I don't in other words, so that it's always tainted. Yeah, but no, what would you? Because so I would think. Hmm. I've often heard people say that because of the fall, mm-hmm. there's because of what happened with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that because of that, and because the world is broken, mm-hmm. that it's inevitable that that is always going to filter into our interactions and relating with each other that that it's impossible that because of that you know things are going to be never fully right do you disagree with that idea not on an absolute scale no but i don't think we you see this is this is part of the problem that we have is that we often try to work on this we 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 are working on a relative scale and envisaging things in an absolute scale what so, does that mean? <laughs> okay, I'm going to go there. Um, in other words, that uh, um, take the idea, for example, of um, uh, this idea that we can't judge God, right? So people would say, you know, you can't, you can't judge God. You human beings don't have the ability to do that. And therefore, 
what you read in the Bible and what you what you understand um, God is doing um, are 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 good. They're, they're, God is good, and therefore everything that God does is good. Now, what do you mean? Before you go, what do you mean though that we can't judge God? We we are una- we are unable to, or we should not. Uh, well, this this is we, we should not because we are unable to. That's the line of thinking that I'm picking up on. And what this is saying is, um, you know, don't fool yourself into thinking that you can have any valid judgment of God because you cannot. You are finite. God is infinite. You are human. God is divine. And I guess the distinction I want to make here, and I'm going to apply it back to the other point, um, to this point about motives, is that I cannot judge God on an absolute level. I do not hold, the only yardstick I hold to judge with, to measure with, is a yardstick that I create or that, that comes from, you know, I can refer to theologians, philosophers, great thinkers, uh, great human beings, etc. And we would say, well, those are all human yardsticks. I mean, as good as they get, they're human and God's divine. And you can never, in other words, can you, it's like the conversation God had with Job. You know, can you measure the universe? Can you count the stars? Can you do all these things that show that you're on my level so that you can assess me? And that's an absolute, a question of, of an absolute sort of measurement. Can you do that? No, I can't. But that does not mean that we cannot, should not, and in fact, do not measure God on our own relative terms. And this comes right back. This comes right back to this whole point about experience. This comes right back. This is embedded in this whole thing about experience. We need to be having these experiences of God in order that we may on our own terms, which are finite, relative, pragmatic. It goes back to some of this other stuff that we talked about in previous podcasts uh, and subjective. And those are not dirty words. I am subjective. I am relative. I, I am pragmatic. Right, and I want to avoid being ideologically focused in terms of those ideas. Like saying, if I'm, if pragmatism is something that's that's my sort of orientation, then utility, whether something works, is the highest goal, the highest standard. Now, is that right? No, no, I don't think so. But do I want things to work? Yeah. Do I want my relationship with God to work? Yes, absolutely. Like it's like Darren Hufford. Uh, I believe we're talking on page 11, we probably mentioned it last podcast, that Christians have for so long, evangelical Christians have so long taken their Christianity and looked at something, looked at, at it and said generally, you know, it doesn't work and they're convincing themselves that it does work. And that's a problem. And so Huffer talks about Christians who are miserable in their spiritual life. Why? Because it's not working. What do we have to do? We have to do something about that. We have to, first of all, identify that, hey, you know, this, this isn't working. I do feel terrible about this. So in terms of judging God, I would just say, yes, I do judge God. And part of that is saying, God, if you say you love me, how am I to understand that? And I am judging. I am evaluating. And this comes back to our discussion about truth value and truth claims. The truth claim, God loves me. Not just people, not just people who go to church. God loves Greg Monteith. God loves John Polstra. How does Greg evaluate the truth of that, the truth value of that claim. I evaluate it through my experience. And part of that works out too. And I think this is also why people are hesitant because people have this silly notion, you don't judge God. Of course you judge God. Of course you judge these claims. Of course you judge whether God shows up or God doesn't. Could you be wrong? Yes, you could be. Could you be right? Yes, you could be. And we're not talking about any sort of absolute judgment or anything like that. We're talking about relative to who you are what you experience, where you live, what your lifespan is, what your situation is, and this, some of these very personal claims. Am I judging God on the idea that God is the only divine entity? No freaking way. How the heck would I know that? <laughs> that, that is part of, part of belief that I think flows out of other things, flows out of my experience of God loving me, flows out of enough corroboration of this material to say, you know what, I think this God is there. So what are the other claims about this God? Well, this God claims to be alone in the pantheon. There is no pantheon. Big X through the pantheon. No other gods. Forget it. Okay, does that make sense? Well, that's another question. And I can assess that without being competent in certain sense to judge it because it's absolute. But I do judge whether God loves me or not. Now, at the end of time, if you listen to someone like Brennan Manning, 
right? Brennan Manning's going to say, when you see God, when you see Jesus, he's going to ask you one question, one question. Do you believe that I really loved you? And he knows, he, you know, this is, this is part of the tricky thing about this when I say judging God. And I, I am coming back to this whole thing about motives, right? But the tricky thing is God says very clearly, I do love you. I do love you. But I think it's wrong of us, nevertheless, as human beings to say, God says God loves me, and so that's good enough for me. No, 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 no. This is not an intellectual component to your faith. Knowing it and understanding it, sure. Sure. And if you want to say, you know, okay, first of all, I'm reading this in the text, and I've been brought up in a Christian house, home, society, subculture, and therefore I'm going to believe it. Okay, cool. But you know what? That can only last so long. Accepting it without evidence, when it's something that is personal and experiential, can only last so long before you say to yourself, either A, I don't need evidence for things in the world around me. And when that happens, we begin to detach ourselves from the real world. And I mean that quite literally. We can detach ourselves from the world. We can say to ourselves that whatever happens doesn't matter in the world around me. And so, of course, we can begin, you know, what I see sometimes with Christians when they witness is that they're, they're extremely offensive. They're disrespectful, impolite. They're disdainful of the people. They're disdainful of the people that they're going out to, quote-unquote, love by witnessing to. Well, how can they do that? Well, they detach themselves from the real world. They do not allow any feedback to come back to criticize them. And all they'll do is they'll, they'll pick a Bible verse like, oh, you know, Christianity is a stumbling block. Jesus is a stumbling block. Jesus is offensive to those. So, of course, these people are offended. No, they're offended because you're a jerk. <laughs> you're an absolute freaking jerk. And I've seen, I've been in the checkout line. We've talked about this with this woman passing this, other, this person a tract. And I'm like, what do you think you're going to accomplish here by passing this woman a tract? She's a, she's a cashier in a busy checkout aisle. She hasn't quite finished dealing with me. She's there with you. You pass her this tract. She's got to sit there and look at it. You don't even talk to her. That's, how, do you that, how do you know that cashier didn't go home and read it and it changed her life that night? Maybe she did, but why would you want to make it more difficult for somebody to embrace what you think is perhaps the most important thing in existence than less difficult? Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to take the relationality out of the most important relationship you can have as opposed to putting it all in? Why would you want, not want to demonstrate how it should be and could be and is for you as opposed to making this, this, this kind of impersonal, almost disembodied, here, I'm going to slip you this thing. Is that what God, is that what you feel like God does to you? Because man, let me tell you, that's not what God does to me. That is not how God treats me. Why on earth would I want to reflect God to somebody else who has no idea about Christianity in a way that undercuts and, and, and um, disregards the wonder and beauty of the relationality that I have with God? I wouldn't do that. And the only reason I can think for somebody else to do it that way is because they haven't experienced it that way. That's how they think it should be. Well, I think that's a huge problem. But you know what? You're not allowing life itself and living out what you understand in the world to speak back to you, to have a potentially critical voice. And so this, what would it look like in that situation then? How would you change? So, so and maybe it doesn't even work, but I, I, so if we rewind on the, the cashier, this person is in line behind you, feels compelled to share slash care for this cashier what oh, is there a more all, effective approach or is it just the wrong context no i think there is a more effective approach but i like what you said which is what well you said share slash care right and i think that any sharing which is devoid of caring is completely off base you do not see jesus acting like that in the gospels why would you take that approach who is, who, is, who is your model? If you look at Jesus and say, I don't think he'd ever do that. Why on earth as a Christian would you think that that's a cool thing to do? Like, who's filling your head with that idea? 
<laughs> fired like, up. I'm so angry. <laughs> I am so Why? angry at this stuff because it's hurtful. It's destructive. It's negative. If God doesn't act like that towards you, why on earth would you think it's a good idea to do that towards other people when you are embodying God to them? You are literally representing God. So what happened in this? I guess I'm not – I wasn't there. So I'm, I'm just I'm picturing – I'm just picturing someone someone hands a track to the cashier and the cashier looks at it and is like, uh, oh, thanks, and just, you know, sets it on the side of the register and that's it. Sort of. I don't even think the person handed it to them. I think she slid. It was even less personal than that. She just slid it across the open space on the- Like a drug know, deal? The scanner. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it just seems so- Here's what I would do. If I felt compelled to care- and share, and I think it. I think those two, as I said, those two things have to go together. Then you know what? If you come into this store and you shop frequently, and you, then you know what? If that cashier's working, get in her lineup, not with the intention of passing her track. And I don't care if there's four people in her line and two people in that guy's line. Get in her line. Go through so every bu- time. So build a Make relationship. A point of saying hi. Build a yes, hello. <laughs> Build a relationship. And then, you know, when, there, when you do have, you know, it's a down moment. There's like nobody else around. Or you can, then you can actually talk to her. Say hello. Tell her your name. Ask her her name, even though it's on her tag. Or say it. Say, hi, so-and-so. I'm so-and-so. And I've, you know, I, I shop here. I've seen you a couple times. Just wanted to say hi. Let her know you're a real human being. Because one of the things that non-Christians need to see is that, real, is that Christians are connected with the real world. They are real human beings and that they do care in a way that non-Christians understand as being caring. Because we, as Christians, sometimes we think that it's the most caring thing we can do to slip a track across the counter to a sales clerk that we've never known and never seen before and never will see again. Yeah, because you're know saving what? them from hell. No, I think you're giving them a piece of paper in a context where it's absolutely pointless for them to receive it, where they can't take the value of it. They might take it home and think about it, but also think, oh, this is kind of weird. Why do people do this? Why do Christians do this? Why didn't she even talk to me? Why didn't she even hand it to me and touch my hand or pass it to me like it was something valuable? Why did she slip it, as you said, across the desk like a drug deal? Like all this stuff is stuff we perceive. We pick it up and it has a meaning. Maybe I see more meaning in it than the cashier did. I don't know. But all I know is that cashier was busy, and um, for all the person sliding the track across knows, the guy right before me was a complete jackass, totally frustrated her, blew her day, and she's now feeling uh, – she's second-guessing herself because he made her – he belittled her, and this woman sliding the track has no idea about that. And she's trying to kind of be re- – she wants this track to be received. Like if you want to be received well, prepare the ground for the receiving. Do the work that needs to be done. So this person that's sliding the track, do they have an agenda or impure motives? I think they definitely have an agenda. Personally, I, I, I think... I'm bringing us back if you couldn't tell. No, you're good. <laughs> I like it. I, I, definitely they have an agenda. Do they have impure motives? I would wonder about that. Do they have, do they have a, an unclear and I think... I'll go this far improper understanding of what it is to relate to God, if they think they're, they're uh, presenting God well to this person, absolutely. Does God come to us in this way? Uh-uh. If you read that book, if you read those texts, if you read about how God interacts with people, God does not sort of show up, slide something your way, and disappear never to be seen again. That is not the God I read about in that text. No. And out of that, out of that, can, can impure motives come? <sighs> I think so. I think our understandings and our motives are linked. I don't think they're, 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 they're causally linked. I don't think they're one-to-one linked, but they're related. There is a relationship there. So what was her agenda? I don't know. I'm assuming her agenda was to, was to help this person. But you know what? When it's my agenda to help them, then there has to be some desire to care there. And I didn't perceive any of that. Now, I'm not inside the woman's head. I don't know how many times she was there. But I got the sense from the look between the cashier and the woman that the cashier was confused. So stunned, there was no communication. If this is a woman 
that goes through the line all the time and that she's even had some form of communication with, I would think they would speak to each other. Or I would think that she would have, there would be some kind of, even if the woman who was sliding the track was maybe embarrassed to do so, even if she kind of, you know, lost her social skills at that particular moment when before she maybe had been conversant and, you know, engaging with the, the cashier, there would have been some kind of exchange. I think what I got from that is these two had never seen each other before and probably never will see each other again. And what's the agenda there? I think the agenda is to do the right thing. I think that's what that woman is concerned about. She is concerned about doing the right thing as a Christian in sharing her faith. But I think she's, I think the way she's understanding God for herself is coloring what she's doing with this other woman. And I think there's some misunderstandings here that are probably breeding, in my book, more problems than they're solving. Sometimes I think it's worse to give somebody a tract than to give them nothing. Because what you're doing there is you're communicating a message about Christians and Christianity that's off-putting to other people. We can damage people more through the presentation of the gospel than we can by not. We can alienate and disenchant people. And, and, And the impact of that should not be understated. And we, I think we can put ourselves in a position where we feel crummy. We really feel like we are treating people poorly. And I think this would go back to something. I, I would be interested to know whether Darren Hufford will touch on this in his book, um, The Misunderstood God, that we're reviewing. And uh, yeah, there's always an agenda there. I don't know what that woman's agenda is, actually. Are her motives pure? They might be. But our pure motives with a misunderstanding of who God is and what God wants and how to represent God to other people, does, does that pan out in the end? I have to say no. I don't think so. I think we need to be really, really careful with that sort of stuff. Does that make any sense? I mean, what do you, what do you think about that? Well, I think what's going through my head is this takes us in a different direction what I'm thinking of is, is it's a huge topic. Free will, <laughs> you know how how much are we able to influence or get in the way of God reaching someone? So in mm-hmm. this in this case, this person slipping the track could have, you know, really turned off this cashier. Does that mean that that cashier never has a relationship with God because of this person? Like, isn't God bigger than that? Well, I think so. But I mean, turning off does not mean need to to equate to never having a relationship. You know, I uh, if you if you, I think, and and it's hard to you know. I remember in one uh, one podcast where were we talking about this? Oh, I think it was with relation to one of Darren's. Uh, comments in his first or second chapter of The Misunderstood God. But, you know, when you sort of, I I think we often have this idea, we can, we can, Christians often can have this idea that, you know, I'm going to go home today and I'm going to eat dinner and I'm going to go to bed. And this cashier is going to go home today and on the way she's going to get hit by a bus and she's going to die. And what have I done today to help her know who Jesus is? And, and I think that there can be some truth in that. I think that truly could happen. Though I think if we were to add up the odds in North America on any given day of someone that we meet who's not perhaps in a hospital because they're dying with cancer or in a hospice someplace, but someone who's you know healthy, who's a cashier or whomever we may come across, the odds of that happening with any particular person we meet are, are remarkably low. People aren't, you know, dying left and right of bus accidents and falling on the grass, glass, uh, on the ice and, and, and cracking their heads open or, or, or things like that, you know, in winter. Um, but I, I think the other thing that mentality does is it puts a ton of responsibility on us. And really the responsibility lies in two places. 
One, it lies with the person themselves, and the other one, it lies with God. I want to be a faithful servant to God, right? I think God, God is both sovereign and parent. And I have two, basically two types of relationship with God. As a sovereign, I'm God's, I'm a servant. You know, and some people use the word slave. And I think we're, we're, we've got a long overdue set of podcasts on this slave-servant idea. But I'm still going with the servant. And I want to be obedient in my service to God. Um, as a parent towards me as a child, I want to be in a love relationship with God. But I need to realize that that person is making and has been making their own choices as an adult for a long time. And they will continue to do so with or without me or my input. And if I am trying to build a relationship with that person, great. And if there's a possibility for me to uh, express uh, who I am, what I believe in, who God, who I believe God to be, and why there's a difference in my life, then great. But I think we need to be really, really careful when we're thinking that sending somebody a tract or something like that is going to make the difference between them being in right relationship with God and them not. Pausing for thought, if that woman receives a tract, let's say in that situation, I mean, the other thing we haven't talked about in the case of someone sliding somebody a tract is what's in the tract? What's the tract say? Often, oftentimes we think, well, it's, 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 it's a tract. It's, it's, it's Christian. It's, it's, doesn't really matter what it says. It's good. <laughs> well, bogus. Forget that. I've seen some tracks. Uh, there are some people, specific tract writers, and I, <laughs> I can think of their names and I can think of some of their targets. And, and, and they're, they're not helpful. I think, I think they're, they're, they're highly questionable. And so, you know, I think there's a difference. Even I, the best that I would, I would expect is going to happen from getting a tract for me personally, and when I think about people, is they're going to pause and they're going to think. And out of that thought, a new chain of possibilities may open up. You know, that thought may lead to, I don't know, discussions with somebody that they know, that they trust, who's a Christian. That, that, that those discussions may then lead to going to a church. Going to that church may lead to becoming involved in a community that is loving and that is open and that is engaged with God and engaging with others in relation to their engagement with God. And out of that may come a relationship. But I think if we think that a tract is a one-stop shop for direct and, and profitable and right relationship with God, I think we've got an awfully small picture of God. Because the difference between people being Christians and not being Christians is not that they don't know about God. If you talk to people in North America, they know everything about the Christian God. And those that aren't Christian typically don't want anything to do with them because he's trouble. He's a problem. He's a lie. It's a myth. And if you think you're going to dispel that with one track, I think, I think that's extraordinarily naive. So... I, I think we're, you know, I'm not saying that it's not, um, that it doesn't weigh on me. When I think about the cashier, and instead of being at home with her family eating dinner, she's lying in the morgue, let's say, hypothetically. Does that possibility weigh on me? Sure it does. But it is not my responsibility. I do not have the power to make that change. And if I... I'm going to try to make a change in someone's life. I need to bank on the things that I know and I believe work the best. Number one, relationship. Number two, medium to long term. Number three, being a real human being through that relationship, over that medium to long term, in order that I may present in, in a living, vibrant, authentic way. You know, going back to, going back to Anna's comment about being authentic right? Trying to just slide a tra track across, man, you better hope that that track has got exactly the right content for that person. And some people might say, oh, well, the Holy Spirit's just going to make sure of that. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> you know, if it's just all some magic formula, if, it, if you know, the Holy Spirit, you know, one of the things the Holy Spirit would really like you to do, use the brain that God has given you to think about these things. 
and not pretend that everything is down to the Holy Spirit and God and all I'm going to do. Again, that's a way of being disengaged with the world around you so that when people, when that person slides the track across and the, 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 the cashier looks at them funny and puts it to the side with the sense of, yeah, this is going in the circular file, i.e. I'm putting this in the garbage as soon as you leave, that you don't think that that's the cashier's problem. No, that's your problem. She's had a long day. She's ticked off with the guy two and you know, the guy in front of me that the woman right behind me who's sliding the track didn't see. And she's got five other people behind the woman sliding the track. And you know what? The store's a long way from being closed. And she's a long way from doing her, being done her shift. And she hates her job. And you think that this is the ideal environment to present this person with God? Are you nuts? Well, yeah, you are. You're not engaged with the world around you. Right? And you need to take the feedback from that person that says, hey, this didn't work for me. And think about it. And maybe somebody else will come up and say, you know, Greg, I've got an even better idea than your idea. And I might say, wow, that's great. You know, you've thought about that. As opposed to making it some sort of knee-jerk reaction. You know, oftentimes when we're presenting tracks, it's more about us than it is about the other person. It's more about us feeling guilty that we're supposed to be making disciples than about the other people that we're actually supposed to be caring about. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's, I hate that. That's a definitely... I feel like an object. I feel like I'm something... That, that person is using. I mean, it feels, it, uh, honestly, it feels a little bit like pornography. It's an, you're objectifying that person. I am so much more than who you think I am. I am so much more than whether I, 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 I take that, tr- like, I just can't imagine what's going through somebody's head to pick up a tract in the middle of a situation that could be like what I've described with the cashier and say, wow, this has changed my life. Really? Sounds like what might change your life is A, getting out of a job that doesn't work for you, B, being in a situation with, where somebody who cares, with somebody who cares for you, feeling cared for, feeling valued, and then B, being presented with something that that person who cares for you and that you've learned to respect says, this has changed my life and here's why. I would never give somebody a tract because there is no freaking way that any tract writer could encapsulate the magnitude, the wonder, the beauty of the relationship that I have with God. No way. I'm never going to find it. And that's the type of thing that I want to give to somebody. If I am talking about, to them about who God is, that's what I want to present. And that takes time. It takes time and it takes a receptivity. And that receptivity on the part of the other person has to be cultivated. And that's my job. When people present tracks, all they're doing, it's like taking seeds and throwing it at the ground. Do you really think someone's going to get planted like that? Is that how people, if, they, if they're really interested in something growing, do they plant like that? Not very often. They've at least tilled first. They've probably done other things. They've fertilized. They've considered the ground. They've considered the seed that they're planting. Right? This is all part of that process. But when you just take a bunch of stuff and throw it out your door... I mean, it sounds like freaking Jack and the Beanstalk. <laughs> and you know what? The Holy Spirit's just like that. These people are picturing, they're picturing the whole process like a transaction or like it's magic, like Jack and the Beanstalk. The Holy Spirit's just going to make this fantastic Beanstalk grow into heaven. Well, you know, it does that in fairy tales. It doesn't do that in real life. Not because the Holy Spirit is not God, not because God doesn't care, but because people are people and God values them. And because people have backgrounds and histories that just sliding a tract is not going to address. We've got to show them we're real human beings. So coming back to Charlie and agenda and pure motives. No, because I think the interesting part or the part I think it would be interesting to put a little more color around is. So Charlie's calling out this quote that he heard about from this guy that says he's never acted with pure motives. Then you, in your comment, kind of highlight the difference between agenda versus motives. But then later on you talk about, and then you kind of move and talk about prejudice. And then you, this is, I thought was interesting. And I'd like you to say more about, you said prejudice and bias properly understood are integral to human knowing as such. This is what I thought was very ironic as such. They are in fact, not flaws to be removed, but assets to be understood. That sounds kind of ironic because normally when you hear, when I think of bias or prejudice, 
Well, more recently, I've been thinking of it in in market research in a business setting, and sometimes sometimes you want that bias there because maybe you want someone that understands your product so that you can get good feedback about it. But sometimes you want to exclude all that bias because you want to really quote pure. I don't pure is not the right word. You want a really good sample. You want to be getting really accurate results. And the assumption is you can't get accurate results if you have bias or prejudice in your sample or in your study. Right. Well, I, I think in this case, we're, we, you're looking at situations where you can remove bias and prejudice. And I think one of the things I'm getting at here is there is no way of removing prejudice and bias. So the point I'm looking at here, and one thing I want to say is I I talked about the example of the person passing a track to a cashier. I'm not in any way implying that Charlie was suggesting that or no. was advocating that. <laughs> I, and I, if anyone missed it, don't ever send Greg a track. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could, but I mean, I'll take a look at it and <laughs> give you my real thoughts on it. But I wasn't suggesting Charlie was doing that, and I was trying to bring that back to the agenda and motives piece. But the piece about prejudice is that coming... Well, yeah, let's, let's just go into this. I mean, our, our typical understanding is we don't want to have bias. We don't want to be prejudiced. And if we're not biased or prejudiced, then we are. What are we? I think we're neutral, right? We want to be neutral. And, and you know, this is a very – this way of thinking when it comes not to, say, market research, right? You might want to say, I want to do market research on a group that has never had – never been impacted by, never tried my product. I'm selling toothpaste. I don't want anybody who's used my product. And I want you to try it for the first time and tell me. Well, you're looking for what their, what their impressions are, right? What their first impressions are. And, and you can find people like that. But if you say, I want to find people who have no first impressions of anything, no bias about anything, you can't do that. Those people don't exist. And if you ask, begin to ask yourself some questions, well, why, why would that be? And in philosophy, what we have seen through the history of philosophy is that um, the Enlightenment, so the way of thinking that came about with uh, philosophers, uh, René Descartes perhaps the poster boy here, but uh, in the 1750s, uh, 40s, um, through the 18th century, um, and, and further on, further on, uh, you know, Enlightenment thinking continued and in fact continues now. And this is one holdover of that thinking. There was the idea that in, we can know things with certainty. And the way to do so is to be free from prejudice and bias. It is to be neutral, to be a neutral observer. And from that neutral, from, from as, as a neutral observer, we can almost see with a God's eye point of view. Now, as Christians, that should immediately make us reticent. How? What, sorry, how's that? I'm seeing with what, what I view, God's eye view? How, how did I manage to do that? You know, nobody sees with a God's eye point of view. And the reality, too, is that nobody is neutral. Nobody can attain neutrality. And some of the work done later, much later in philosophy in the 1960s through uh, the present has really debunked the idea that we want to be or even can be neutral in terms of our knowledge or our relationship to knowledge. And uh, one very famous work in the the 60s uh, talks about uh, personal knowledge, that all knowledge is personal knowledge, that I'm related to the things that I know, right? That they're related to my experience, to my actions, etc. And the idea I'm getting at here is, is pretty much that that we want not to be without prejudice. And, and prejudice comes from, comes from the French word, our, our word in English, prejudice, comes from the French préjugé légitime, legitimate prejudgments. And it's le- the legitimate part that's been dropped off. And the, the notion of prejudgments, the notion of I have an opinion about a subject through various sorts of really unassessed interaction with a subject. I have, an, I have an opinion about pancake houses because a couple of friends have gone to a couple of pancake houses. I don't quite recall which pancake houses those were and they had a terrible time. So pancake houses are lousy places to go for food. Well, 
that would be a you know a prejudice that I might hold, and I, I might, you know, the, the I think the real th- step we want to take here is to bring these out and to assess these things, not to try to get rid of them entirely, but to realize maybe maybe there's a pancake house in your area that really isn't very good, and uh, maybe it's not a good place to eat. Some restaurants just aren't as good as others, and and I think that's quite factual. Um, but you would want to be a little bit more clear about the idea that, well, no, no pancake house anywhere is a good place to eat. Well, maybe that's not true. And maybe you're going to go to Seattle and go to a fantastic pancake house with a, a f- business contact because that's where they want to go. And you end up being there and boy, you really have a good meal. And so that's the idea of, um, you know, prejudice is not a flaw, but it's an asset. It, it allows me, it's my way of knowing anything at all, right? I, it's my basis. It's where I start from. I do not enter into this world neutral, right? I may have never but tried what if to it's wrong? Then it's wrong, right? And I, but then and I how does that help you to know? That helps you to know the wrong thing. Well, hopefully, though, we've got, and this is the, this is the key part, I think we have to have a certain orientation towards our understanding, and this is exactly what I'm talking about. This is exactly what I'm talking about with the person with the tract. It's the same thing. You've got to be willing to take what you know now, what you believe, what you think you understand, and live it out into the world. You think it's a good thing to be passing tracts to people? You think it's a bad thing to be eating at pancake houses? Well, you know what? When your business contact says, I really want to go to the the IHOP in Seattle, and you've never been to an IHOP. And this is not an IHOP commercial, by the way. <laughs> I am not, this is not product placement. You go to whatever place it is in Seattle and you love it. Oh, okay. Allow that to filter in to your pre-existing understanding of pancake houses and say, you know what? Some of these places are actually pretty good. Or when that cashier gives you that look that says, I can't believe you just did that. That's like giving me your garbage or something in a container that falls apart in my hands so that I've got guck all over my hands. And now I've got to take care of your mess. And I've got how am I supposed to do that? I'm not going to wash my hands. I'm supposed to deal with all these people. You know what? Take that. Take that in the same way you would take your experience of enjoying a good meal at a pancake house and allow that to impact what you understand discipleship and witnessing to mean. Let that impact you. Don't just overwrite that with a Bible verse that says Jesus is a stumbling block. Jesus is offensive. Yeah, I'd like to that, do a whole episode on what does that really mean. The I, stumbling block and yeah. Yeah, the, 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 I feel the offensive, I feel like that's one of the biggest loopholes in the world. The loopholes, scapegoats, cop-outs, I don't know what the right word is, but yeah, I, I feel like so many, I feel like that's a super easy way to just let yourself off the hook. Yeah, I was just a complete jerk, but you know, the, the gospel is offensive. But, well, that's, that's the point, too. And with people like that, I would say, so, you know, you're a Christian, and so you, you really do believe in, in that, that you're sinful. When, when are you sinful when you witness? Whoa. And, and if they got no answer for me with that, if they got no answer, so, so you're perfect when you witness. What is that? What do you think about that idea? You just told me you've got no sense of you and ever doing anything wrong when you witness, aside from maybe not witnessing. But you, <laughs> but you go out there, it's, it's, you know, we're talking the month of February. It's not a leap year. It's got 28 days. You witness for 28 days straight. Tell me about you being sinful during those 28 days when you are witnessing. If people can't give me any answers or doing anything wrong, if you want to use those terms, you know, or not, not loving your neighbor while you are witnessing to them. When, do you, how, when and how do you fail to love your neighbor? And again, if they're not giving me any inf- information, oh yeah, I, I've spent a lot of years doing this and I can tell you, tell me about some of your past mistakes that you've learned from. Tell me about some of your past areas of, of improperly treating your neighbor while you're witnessing. If they don't have any of that, what, so God just kind of divinely, the Holy Spirit just kind of magically makes you wonderful when you witness? How, how come you're not like that all the time then? You know, and, I, and again, the other comment I made to Charlie 
in my response was, I wrote, so the issue is not the notion, the Christian notion of human sinfulness, and I put in brackets, which needs a bit of clarifying, I think. And, and again, I'm using this idea of sinfulness in the way that I think most Christians do. I think it does need some clarifying. So that's another area. And, and I linked to a post where I did some of that clarifying in my blog. Um, oh, John, this is, there's just there's so many pitfalls in here where I think we've got so many messed up notions. So much of what Darren Hufford says, you know, this stuff isn't working and we refuse to admit it. I think one of my big points of frustration is there's so much disconnect between Christian belief and existence as human beings in the world. And I think many, if not most, of the non-Christians that interact with Christians see this and they say, why on earth would I want to be a Christian? I see them as being so disconnected with the real world. And Christians instead of seeing this as a valid critique, as a source of information, as a, hold on, I can learn something from this person. They're giving me feedback on how I'm interacting. And I'm interested in interacting well with people because I want to care for people. I want to be as God would be to these people. Literally, that's what we're supposed to be doing. So what's one step in the right direction? How do we round this out? What, what, They've talked about everything that's wrong. How, what's, like, what's one step, yeah, what's one step in the right direction? Well, you know, honestly, and I think this is a sign of how much I like this book, I, I am critical of some of the things Darren's written, Darren Hufford and his Misunderstood God. But the very basic notion that he has at the beginning in chapter one and at the top of the page on the back of the book, if you are miserable with your Christian spirituality, if you are constantly striving, if you feel like you're never measuring up, if you feel like it's not working, like it's not making sense, like it's somehow supposed to be giving you satisfaction, peace. Oh, here's a, here's a word that I, I wonder, I wonder how many Christians use this word, delight. If these are things that when you sit in a quiet room and you are honest with yourself, if these are either unexperienced or tremendously rare, a step in the right direction is just to have that moment of reflection and be honest with yourself. And if, you've got no, if you're listening to this and you've got nobody to share it with, share it with us. No one's going to be uh, down on you here. All right? I mean, that's certainly where I've been. And I think the only way to move beyond this is, first of all, to say, ah, wow, yeah, that's what's going on. By and large, I do feel miserable. By and large, I don't feel peace. By and large, I am always worried or wondering whether I measure up. I'm always or typically not having a sense that God loves me. And delight, what's delight? Delight is when I go and have like a, a, a frosty at Wendy's, but it's not what I get when I go to church or when I'm with thinking about God or when I'm living my Christian life. And I think having that moment of reflection is the number one most important thing. And I would say with as much sincerity as I've bashed this whole idea of sliding tracks across a counter to somebody as being the wrong way to go with equal fervor, I would say, God is there. God loves you. God delights in you. And that delight will be will be echoed back and cultivated and enlivened in your life on an order of magnitude. It will be huge. And I, I seriously, that's been my experience. And, uh, you know, I, I am a Christian because I've fallen in love with God. And, uh, those 
points about feeling loved, about feeling at peace, etc., are not things that now I struggle with, though before as Christians, uh, as a Christian, I definitely did. And I think that there are some changes that we, some of the things we're talking about are involved in getting us further down this process. But I think the first thing to do is have that moment of reflection. You know, and if, and if somebody's saying, no, my life is largely, my Christian life is not miserable. It's happy. It's joyous. It's, I, I feel delightful in terms of God. Then, you know, I guess I would say, I'd be interested to know what that means for you in terms of how you interact with people. What does that look like in terms of you living that out into the world? And I'd, I'd, I bet I wouldn't see too many of those people who are sliding tracks. I bet I would see people who are engaging with other people in much more personal ways, in much more focused, intentional, and... Uh, medium to long-term ways. You've been listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on iTunes or over at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 16. If you'd like to be notified by email when new episodes are released or other news, subscribe to our mailing list, also available at the website. We welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thanks to Kevin for his generosity. Support him at his website by going to incompetech.com. Tune in next week for a new episode. <laughs>